As we conclude these uh, New Year observations and prepare for the Lord's Supper this morning, we want to go back to another time and place for a moment. To the kingdom of Babylon. If you're looking in your Bible, if you're looking in the notes, you'll see the verses there. But if you're looking in your Bible, you'll see this in Daniel chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar has sleep issues. It's the second year of his long reign in Babylon. And he's not been sleeping well at all. Verse 1 of chapter 2 tells us, In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. In an effort to find some peace and get some sleep, Nebuchadnezzar calls for his wise men. These wise men are described as magicians and sorcerers and enchanters and Chaldeans. The king tells them about uh, his troubling dreams, and he demands for them to describe and interpret those dreams for him. Well, they in turn ask him to describe the dreams. And they say, when you describe to us the dreams, we'll explain to you what they mean. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't like that answer. He's not satisfied with it at all. And so he says to his wise men and sorcerers and enchanters in verses 5 and 6 of Daniel 2, the word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. And once more, the wise men ask him to tell them what he saw in the dreams. And they promise that then they'll be able to interpret them for him. But the king isn't satisfied with the process. And he says in response, in verses 8 and 9 now, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. When we come to verses 10 11, we read their answer. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Well, we see Nebuchadnezzar had a response to this. It's in verse 12. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't known for his patience. His uh, anger flares up frequently, and it does here. Now among the wise men of the kingdom were those who had been brought to Babylon from conquered territories and, and countries around the world. 
And among those conquered peoples were the Jews. And from that nation, the best and wisest men had been separated out and brought to this great capital. And most of you were aware that in this group was the Lord's prophet Daniel, along with the, his three famous companions. When news of the order to execute the wise men reaches Daniel, he lobbies for time to pray and to seek the mind of the Lord on all of this. And it's granted to him. And we read now in Daniel chapter 2, verse 17, Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in the vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. This is followed by a beautiful prayer of thanksgiving from Daniel for the revelation that God gave to him of the king's dream and of its meaning. And he then sought an audience with Nebuchadnezzar and it was granted to him. So we come down now to verse 26 of chapter 2 and we read, The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen in its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Daniel then unfolds the content, the whole content of the dream. He tells the king exactly what he saw. A large and brilliant statue that struck fear to his heart. Nebuchadnezzar was an image worshiper by nature. But they were all dreams. They weren't real, and so was this one. But its animation, its construction, its appearance were troubling and, and menacing. Matthew Henry believes that the statue was mighty and threatening in its appearance and its posture. And then Daniel describes the makeup of the statue. And when he gets done describing the makeup of the statue, he adds this. And this is verses 34 and 35 of Daniel 2. As you look at the statue, a stone was cut out by no human hand. And it struck the image on, the, on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. 
Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, as most of you may know, Daniel goes on with the explanation and the interpretation of the dream, and it covers world history and the story of the kingdoms of this world from the days of Nebuchadnezzar all the way down to the Roman Empire. And then Daniel comes to the part we just read about the stone, not hewn by men, but brought by God, where the great stone not cut by human hands strikes the image and pulverizes it. And like chaff to the wind, it blows away. And in its place, the stone sits and then grows until it becomes a great mountain filling the whole earth. And of this part of the dream, Daniel says this in verses 44 and 45. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. This is the portion that's the object of our concern this morning. John Trapp says that in these two verses, you have the whole sum of the gospel. And there are three things to consider here. The origin and identity of the kingdom, the nature of the kingdom, and citizenship in the kingdom. So let's start with the origin and identity of this kingdom, this kingdom of God. It is, according to verse 44, the work of God alone. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom, Daniel says. Now that's not to say, beloved, that he has no part in the rising and falling of all nations and kingdoms. The Lord does, and he freely uses providential means to, to bring those things to pass. We read in the scripture of his putting a hook in the nose of a monarch and leading him about to establish the order of his kingdom. God even calls this Nebuchadnezzar his servant. You see that in Jeremiah 27 and verse 6. Jeremiah is speaking and the Lord's speaking in the Lord's name. The Lord says, Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. So Nebuchadnezzar is the servant of the Lord in his nation building and his bringing down of nations. But when it says here, in Daniel 2.44, that he will set up this kingdom of his own. 
declares that it's a kingdom that will arise in a unique fashion. It's like a stone cut from a mountain by no human hand. There's none of the hand of men or women in it. It is all of God, from its conception to its inception. No man ever had the idea of establishing such a kingdom. No man ever tried to establish such a kingdom. This is the work of God alone. The creature who believes so often that nothing can take place without his or her participation and cooperation has no part at all in the establishment of this work. This is the work of the one who, according to the word of God, did awesome things that we did not look for, who came down and the mountains quaked at his presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. This is the work of that God. Matthew Henry said it should be neither raised nor supported by human power or policy. No visible hand should act in the setting of it up, but it should be done invisibly by the Spirit of the Lord of hosts. There's no art of war, no art of politics that has any part in the work. If anything, all the powers of earth and hell were joined in opposition to the establishment of this kingdom. But all in all avail. It was not established by any human art or device, but it was cut from unhewn rock. Now we happen to be blessed with two very pertinent references to all of this. What I mean is, we can really picture this in our minds easily because of where we live. Now today is not the best day for it, maybe later today, but um, imagine, if you will, if this image stood just out at the end of the sidewalk there, uh, just to the right as you go down to the parking lot. Suddenly, that statue standing there, and suddenly there's a shaking and a rumbling and that great stone that sits there now, you know that big rock at the end of the sidewalk here? That great stone broke off from the face of Mount Rainier and came flying and whistling over the Puyallup Valley and with a resounding thump landed on that image outside the building, turning it to dust, scattering it to the four winds. And then slowly, but inevitably, it began to grow and to grow and to grow until it filled the whole earth. No one cut that stone from the face of the mountain. No chisel, no hammer, not even dynamite. It was exploded from out of the granite by the hand of God. No one craned it onto a flatbed truck or a train car and transported it over here. It sailed on unseen wings and hit its target and smashed it. Now with that picture in mind, when was this to happen in regards to what we read here in Daniel chapter 2? 
in the days of those kingdoms pictured by the statue, Daniel says. The Lord tells Daniel. Being as they were successive in nature, what are we to understand about that statement? Well, simply this, the rise and fall of each one of those kingdoms sort of encompasses and envelops and swallows up the other one and does it until they're all gathered together under one great kingdom, the empire of Rome. And the rock was set and cut out and sent to crush them all. Now it's left for us in this uh, brief review to now identify the kingdom. And it can clearly be no other beloved than the kingdom of your dear Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The gospel church, as Matthew Henry calls it, is the kingdom in which Christ rules sovereignly. And it is the rock that was established. The kingdom that was brought about by Christ and his death on the cross that crushes all the rest. In Colossians chapter 116, chapter 1 verse 16, we read, For by him, that is by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And then in 1 Peter 3.22 it says, Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. All authority is in him, and this kingdom that he has established by his own blood, by his own sacrifice on the cross of Calvary, this kingdom is the kingdom that supplants all others. We are told in Isaiah that with the king of this great monarchy, and this is Isaiah 11.5, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Jesus is a king who redeems and who protects and who secures his own. And those who are his offer to him as any faithful subjects would honor and majesty. In Matthew, or rather, excuse me, Luke chapter 1. Verses 68 through 75, Zacharias is speaking and he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. It is a kingdom, not of this world, beloved, and yet set up in it. It is the kingdom of God among men, says Matthew Henry. Now it's been asked... Is picturing the kingdom of God as a rock a fit picture for the kingdom of Christ? Isn't it a spiritual and, and heavenly kingdom? 
full of life and blessing. We think of rocks as being something substantial and, 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 and real and, and that you can lay your hand upon. You can feel the, the, uh, the, the weight of it. You can feel the, the um, intensity of it. And the question is, is that really a fit picture of, of the kingdom of Christ, of the church? And the answer is yes, to be sure. It's all of those things. But the image that God chose in this vision or dream for Nebuchadnezzar was appropriate to the whole scene. We look on the forces of the world, political, financial, and substantial, and we tend to be intimidated by them. How can the church, a group of professing believers, stand against the political and financial and substantial power of the world? How do you expect, through preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, through loving deeds of truth, how do you expect to overturn the powerful political powers that control the world? How are you going to confront the armies of the world? Where are you going to find the funds to compete with George Soros? You have that much money? Any of you? If we put all our money together and all our assets together and we pay that bank account against the bank accounts of those who are in power, how do you think it would fare? Who do you think would lay out the money first? So how do you expect to overcome those things? We're intimidated by them. And to put to rest that intimidation, the Lord portrays the kingdom of his Son in this instance, as a great rock sailing through the air, landing on all the representation of that power and wealth and polarizing it, and then swelling to fill the whole earth. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 12 we read, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. That's the king we represent in this world. Now, Daniel, the Lord, through Daniel, then enhances this picture by sketching out briefly for us the nature of this kingdom. There are four aspects of its nature listed by Daniel. First of all, it's a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And I love the imagery here. The hope of Satan and the dream of many men and women has been the strangling of the kingdom of God. The strangling of the church. They surround it with laws and restrictions. They squeeze it with persecution and ridicule. They enwrap it in mockery and they try to bring the very life out of it. And they've been trying to do that since it was founded. And 
have never been successful. They've tried. They've wrapped the strongest cords they could possibly find around it and pulled them as tightly as they could possibly could. And instead of strangling the church, it sprang into new life. They have ridiculed and mocked the church and believers in Christ. You know the sort of things they say about you. As believers in the minds of many, you belong in re-education camps because you're insane. Because you believe in this kingdom and its king and you serve him. It's that kind of intimidation that's brought to bear. But it's all to no avail. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28, it says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. This kingdom cannot be destroyed. That's what Daniel is told by the Lord. And you remember what he says at the end when he gives the explanation, this, this vision is going to take place and nothing's going to prevent it. Secondly, it's a kingdom that will never fall into other hands. False sons and daughters, as the hymns say, are found in the pale of the church. But they'll never be able to wrest the true church from its savior and its king. They will try. They are trying. But they can't succeed. Because he is the king eternal immortal, invisible, the only wise God. And to him belong honor and glory forever and ever. Amen, Paul says to Timothy. Paul warned the Thessalonians that the man of lawlessness would come. But he says he can't prevail. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter, seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. But he will not succeed. No one can take the crown from the king of kings. It can't be done. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came like one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So it's a kingdom that will never be destroyed. It's a kingdom that will not fall into other hands. Other hands will try to get their grip on it, but the true church will arise. Thirdly, 
It's a kingdom that will break in pieces all other kingdoms and will fill the earth. In Psalm 103, verse 19, the Lord has prepared his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. As we said, not by worldly or fleshly violence, but by truth and by love. In 1910, it was estimated that there were around 600 million individuals identified as Christians throughout the world. They were going back a little more than 100 years ago, 600 million people identifying as Christians. And as you hear that number, you either come to the conclusion in your mind that there are more or less today than there were in 1910. If you listen to the world, what would be your judgment? Fewer. Fewer, right? But actually today there are 2.2 billion people who identify themselves as Christians. Now we know that includes all sorts of denominations and confessions, but it did in 1910 too. But even if you take a percentage of that number, it's safe to say that there are more Christians in the world today than ever before. The Bible, in its published form, generates annually over $400 million in revenue. And that's not changed. Your version, maybe you have your version, the Bible app has over 100 million downloads and even more than that, they keep going. It's been amongst the top 100 free iTunes apps for three consecutive years. Statistically, over 60,000 people have been recorded to be using a Bible app at any given moment. With three people every second sharing some sort of biblical quote or verse to their social media outlet. Three every second. Sharing a verse on social media. And what verse do you think is the one most often shared? You all probably have a guess. Isaiah 41 verse 10. I'm not going to tell you what it says. You can look it up. <laughs> Many of you know it. But it's the, the most popular biblical verse online, according to your version. Psalm 22, verses 27 through 28 says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations church fills the earth and it's an everlasting kingdom we can't spend too much time with this but listening again to the words recorded last week that were spoken to Mary by the angel Gabriel listen to how, how different they are than what we often think of when we think of the words spoken to her this is Luke chapter 1 verse 30 and the angel said unto her fear not Mary don't be afraid for you have found favor with the Lord, and behold, you shall conceive in your womb, and bring forth a son, 
And she'll call his name Jesus. And he'll be this beautiful little baby that you'll put in swaddling clothes in a manger. And shepherds will come and see. And, and animals will come. And the sheep will bow. And the, and the cows will low. And it'll be a beautiful and touching scene. Now, he shall be great. And he shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Do you get the context there? Mary... Don't be afraid. Well, why shouldn't I be afraid about what's happening here? Mary, don't be afraid. Because the child that's coming to you is coming to you from the hand of God and he will be great and he will rule the world and his kingdom is forever and ever. Don't be afraid, Mary. And it's the same message that comes to you and me. Don't be afraid, beloved. The king that we have is the Lord Jesus Christ and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever and of his kingdom there shall be no end. The eternal character of this kingdom and the reign of the king is reflected again in Hebrews chapter 1 and verses 8 and 9. But under the sun he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your fellows. And finally, of the church, of the kingdom of Christ, it is said in Isaiah chapter 60, Your gates shall be open continually. Day and night they shall not be shut. The people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For the nations and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. Now all we have to do this morning quickly is talk about citizenship in this kingdom. And first, beloved, citizenship in this great kingdom is by faith and grace alone. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. But where can we find that righteousness? The righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees and befits us for an everlasting kingdom. Where do you find the righteousness that fits you out to be a part of this kingdom that we've been talking about? And beloved, it's by faith in Jesus Christ alone. In John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But being born again through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that kingdom becomes a part of who we are. John, in his revelation of Jesus Christ, says that he, that is Jesus, is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. John says that he loves us and that he freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. By his blood, he's made you a part of his kingdom. And Paul prays this for the Colossians and all the church. 
He says in Colossians 1.11, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then we have the emblem of our place in this kingdom. And while it's true that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, as Paul says in Romans 14, 17, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, your right to sit at this table this morning is established by your faith in Jesus Christ. Because it's through his body broken for you. It's because of his blood shed for you that you possess that righteousness, that peace, and that joy that grants you the right to eat and drink here because you're a part of this kingdom, the kingdom of Christ. This table and your participation in it is emblematic of your place and your part in the kingdom. Jesus himself would say to his disciples in Luke chapter 22, verse 29, and I assign, or I appoint, or I bestow to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. When you partake this morning of these elements in faith, you confess that by the grace of God, you're part of the rock Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream a part of the church and the kingdom of Jesus Christ part of the kingdom that though it is harassed and troubled by men and demons is not contracting or losing any crown but is moving every day every moment closer and closer to that moment when it will fill the earth Send your throne, almighty king, and spread your glories all abroad. Let your own arm salvation bring, and be thou known the gracious God. Let millions bow before thy seat. Let humble mourners seek your face. Bring daring rebels to your feet, subdued by your victorious grace. Oh, let the kingdoms of the world become the kingdoms of the Lord. Let saints and angels praise your name. Be thou through heaven and earth adored. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for the testimony of your word concerning the kingdom that you have made us a part of by grace. And we pray, Lord, that as we come together around this table this morning and we partake of these elements and we remember the death of Christ, we pray, Lord, that we will remember that this death of Christ is what has established the church and that we have a part in the church, this great rock, because we have a part in Jesus Christ. Bless these things to our hearts today, Lord, and draw us nearer to yourself in adoration and love. And may we be bold and encouraged and thankful to be a part of such a kingdom. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.